0: This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manice. On today's program, we meet the landscape architect behind an installation highlighting key women in Danish history. We also visit a church in Canada whose redesign and renovation is fit for the Pope. Plus, My Teresa, an e-commerce fashion company venturing into interiors. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. We start today's show in Denmark, where the installation, 50 Queens, highlights the lack of memorials to Danish women of significance. Located in Copenhagen's largest public square, it features 50 plinths of varying heights, representing key female figures from a variety of fields. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, spoke to Julia Fritteli, partner at design firm Bjarke Engels Group, also known as BIG, to find out more about the project. The landscape architect and urban designer began by explaining where the idea for the installation came from.
1: We connected with Michael Tauber, who is the director of the Charlottensburg Museum, which is right off the King Square in Copenhagen, and he brought up a very interesting article which was written by Anne-Sophie Hermansen, where she pointed out in 2020 that um, out of uh, 2,500 monuments, historic monuments in Denmark, only 28 of those are women. And we thought, how can we relate to that? How can we make sure that all the voices that have helped building the culture in Denmark, and we know there's a lot of women out there, could be represented in in the public space? And the monument is not just for the monument itself, but really becomes a symbol of equal representation in public space. And that's where we start thinking about the pedestal. And we thought about how can we create a public space where maybe a series of pedestal are inhabiting the streets of Copenhagen to kind of call for action, to look for those uh, for artists and, and voices who would be potentially creating all the statues and the monuments that are missing. And I think everyone can remember 2020 for the Black Lives Matter, but also the Me Too movement and a lot of other cultural events that really uh, impacted the way we, uh, we've been looking at our society during the, the pandemic. And if you look at it, a lot of times there were a great symbolism on the, on the statue and the monument. A lot of monuments were vandalized. A lot of uh, also colonial monuments close to Denmark or Greenland were vandalized. Statues were removed from the pedestal and communities which were mostly representing minorities were standing on top of this pedestal claiming their voice, claiming to rewrite history and bring back the voices that were not heard before. So we thought that the pedestal had this strong symbolism. It goes beyond the statue itself. It set up the starting point, the symbol of what can happen in the future, of the statues to come. But also re-looking at the past, what we can change from who has been celebrated in the past, who are the voices missing. So anybody visiting the site, going to King
2: Square or Queen Square as you've renamed it, what will they encounter?
1: We have arranged the fifty pedestals in a circular uh, form so that a circle doesn't have a start or end, right So it does also has that iconic meaning of this infinite loop where we look at the past, but we also look at the future, together with the city and artists and, and cultural uh, foundations here in Denmark, we selected a jury of ten people, and those are part of the jury is philosophers, professors, politicians, artists. And those people have selected 49 women. Each pedestal height corresponds to how long a woman has lived. So uh, the lowest one are the women that have lived the shortest. So they had, let's say, less time to contribute to the cultural uh, history of Denmark, even though they had great impact. And the tallest one are the the women who lived the longest. So those 49 women were selected by by the jury. And they're mostly all Danish, or of course from cultural uh, Danish roots. And the reason why they've been selected is because they've greatly informed Danish culture. I can mention a few. There is Karen Blixen, which of course is an author and a writer that is known all over the world. Uh, who moved to Africa, uh, in Kenya, and uh, where she founded a coffee farm. And together with the coffee farm, she really created a very pleasant working environment for the workers, setting up schools for children and pushing education. She's been pushing education, but it's also about gender equality, independence for women. We are talking about 100 years ago. Her books, her poems, her life has really huge significance for what we are talking about today, the contemporary debate on gender equality. It is nice to mention uh, Lili Elbe, and I think maybe you can re- you remember the, the movie The Danish Girl is the first uh, transgender, so it was born as a man and um, Lili Elbe became a woman in 1931, unfortunately dying after the operation and the surgery. And I think in the history is often forgotten because the first transgender in Denmark is referred as Christine Jorgensen in 1952, uh, so it is nice through those pedestals through this exhibition to actually remember. So this is an example of like stories that is people that are recognized for what they've done in their life, but also for what their action and their stories have had as a contribution in the years to come. We decided to leave the fiftieth pedestal as unnamed. So it's the tallest pedestal and uh, there will be um, an online list where everyone will be able to submit the name of the queen and queen means anyone uh, besides gender or or culture. Uh, You can submit the name of anyone so then we can create this list, a long list of people that we all think has influenced uh, Danish history. And that's also that idea to make it feel open, right? These are the first women that the jury has selected as the ones to be celebrated, but there will be many more. So I'm very curious to see the list growing over the, over the years. To think about sustainability, we thought to build those pedestals in plywood. So it's material that is natural and can easily be recycled for other purposes. Uh, so then they will be um, painted with white concrete coat. And, and also the color white, it's also to stand out in, in the square, but also to have this very monumental meaning and image to those pedestals. And the tallest one will be built out of mirror so that everyone will see themselves and others reflected in the pedestal to symbolize how open and the infinity of that list where everyone can submit the name, but also everyone eventually can be part of it. And perhaps just to to round off, what do you hope will will come from this installation? So I learned a lot through the project and I've been really uh, shocked by the fact that there are five times more animal statues in Copenhagen than women. There are 101 statues in in Copenhagen, which is the capital of Denmark, and 26 of them are animals and only five are women. It's not just about the the statue itself, right? But it's just about how we've been looking at our past, our history, and our our culture with completely different eyes, much more male-oriented, where also animals, for instance, horses, dogs, lions, and bulls were really seen as a symbol of admiration and power. And I'm really excited with this project that we are like looking into how we can change the perception of power, admiration, and also the perception of what is the meaning of, of our city, what is the meaning of our culture. And I hope in a few years for now, I hope at least there will be the same number of female statue and animals in, in Copenhagen.
0: That was Julia Frittley, landscape architect and urban designer at BIG, in conversation with Maylee Evans. The installation, 50 Queens, is on until the 18th of September 2022 as part of the Golden Days Festival in Copenhagen. You can catch it at King Square, or rather Queen Square, thanks to its temporary renaming. We're in Canada next to visit a church whose redesign and renovation is fit for the Pope. In late August of 2020, a fire-ravaged Sacred Heart Church of the First Peoples in central Edmonton. The parish is frequented by members of the city's Indigenous communities and has been their spiritual home for over 100 years. The smoke damage to the structure was considerable and restoration has been underway for the past two years. Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Rossiter, was at the church's reopening and explains why the structure is so important for the First Nations community.
3: It's a warm summer day in Edmonton. The air is dry and thick, but the heat is welcomed in this Canadian prairie city that's known for its frigidly cold winters. A crowd of people mull about outside the Sacred Heart Church for the First Peoples in the inner city. The modest two-story red brick building lines the leafy street. It's just one of many churches that dot this area. Today is a day that they've been waiting for for almost two years. Parishioners have been forced to worship in a no frill school gym across the street after the church was damaged by a fire. They applaud while gathered around the front steps of the church as they get ready to see the 6.5 million Canadian dollar facelift the church has received inside. And today, This church is being dedicated by the city's Archbishop. Something that doesn't happen often. Today it's a historical moment for all of us as a Sacred Heart Church of the First Peoples. Gary Gerdner is Métis Elder for the Sacred Heart Church, and he's part of the crowd that's eager to be in the church to worship today. He started coming here back in 1983. He explains what caused the fire two years ago.
1: What it is that we do a ceremony called smudging, which is a blessing, just like kind of like incense. And somebody that wasn't completely familiar with our procedure happened to be smudging. And what we do is when we're finished smudging, we usually leave the stuff in the frying pan until it cools off. And then the next person comes in, dumps it in, in, in the can. Well, what that person did, he dumped it in the can while it was still alive, but he didn't leave it there. He dumped it in the garbage. And then the, the garbage caught on fire, and the fire damage wasn't bad, but the smoke th- throughout the building, it just all everything. And of course, when they started stripping down there, then they found all of this Sebestos. The so they had to strip the whole church completely. and the inside, all there was was the outside walls left.
2: Wow,
3: it's been a tremendous burden lifted off our shoulders. Bernie Marty is the elder for the Sacred Heart parish. And he's touched to see everyone here today. got nothing
2: against the gymnasium we used for a while, however, uh, this is more our home than anything else, and it has been for a long, long time,
3: eh? Elder Fernie Marty has been a member of the church for the past 20 years. He offers smudges to parishioners before they head inside for today's service and dedication. The traditional Indigenous ceremony is done for purifying or cleansing the soul of negative thoughts of a person or a place. The Catholic Church has a long and fraught relationship with Indigenous peoples in Canada. An estimated 150,000 Indigenous children were forced to attend residential schools in Canada between the late 1800s and the 1990s. It was in these residential schools where neglect and physical and sexual abuse were rampant. And more than 60% of these schools in Canada were run by the Catholic Church. Back in July, Pope Francis came to Canada to apologize for the abuse that happened in these schools. He even came here to the Sacred Heart Church as part of his six-day tour in Canada. For Elder Fernie Marty, the Pope's apology is a positive step for reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. I call it reconciliation. <laughs> we all play a part in do, doing our part, uh, making sure that uh, those kinds of atrocities never happen again in, on Canadian soil. Four Indigenous drummers stand side by side each holding a hand drum made of raw elk animal hide, stretched over a wood frame in one hand, and in the other hand, they beat the drum with a leather-tipped drumstick. They sing in Dakota Iska, an indigenous language with raw emotion. A stream of parishioners file into the church for today's dedication. Hundreds of churchgoers file in and line the pews, They pack the inside of the parish, leaving space for standing room only.
1: Around symbols that speak powerfully of Indigenous culture and tradition.
3: Richard Smith, the Archbishop of Edmonton, leads the Mass and walks around the church blessing the four walls. With a papal apology largely on everyone's mind, for Archbishop Smith, today's Mass is part of the healing process too.
4: I think this country's desire to rededicate themselves to the journey of healing and reconciliation with indigenous peoples. So the significance of what we're doing here liturgically today for this particular parish,
3: I think redounds throughout our province and throughout our country. The design of the sanctuary at the front of the church looks like an abstract motif of a forest made of raw wood with crucifixes emerging above. And there's a teepee at the front, which is made of restored wood from the original church. Of course, there were some other challenges with the redesign. The building is from 1913. There was no insulation in the structure or any type of thermal, well, anything. Something that's necessary in a city with winter temperatures that can drop down close to minus 40 degrees Celsius. So Henry Howard, the architect behind the project, had to decide how to bring the building up to modern-day code. The existing church had a lot of extra stuff in it,
2: which was accreted over the years. We cleaned it all back, and we tried to get the sense of the bones of the church showing the trinity and showing purity of the inside.
3: Henry says they want to step further with the design and restoration of the church by working directly with the indigenous community to ensure it accurately represented them. This restoration is an example of how communities can come together through design to help with reconciliation for indigenous communities. It shows that with some really not huge adjustments to the way you do things, you can start to tweak such that you're actually more sensitive to certain groups, which we didn't, I didn't know could be so effective when we first started. Reconciliation between the church and indigenous peoples in Canada is slowly inching towards progress. The papal apology spoke volumes. But as many say, there's still plenty of work to be done. Spirituality is an important part of life for many indigenous peoples, and with this redesign, it shows that their traditional ways can be honored as well. And many here feel that they claim this building and that it is truly now indigenous. This is a sort of rebirth. For Monocle in Edmonton, I'm Sheena Rossiter.
0: Founded in 2006, MyTeresa is a German e-commerce fashion company with headquarters in Munich. Stocking the likes of Fendi, Moncler and Bottega Veneta, the company moved into the interiors market this summer with a new category called Life and an offer that includes homeware and tableware. To learn about the company's buying strategy and customers' purchasing trends, Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, caught up with Richard Johnson, Chief Commercial Officer of MyTeresa. Natalie began by asking Richard why my Teresa
4: decided to get into interiors. My Teresa's heritage history is in fashion, as you know. We were born of a store in Munich before we went online and became a major global player, and we've been thinking about our customers wants and needs beyond fashion for quite some time. We're not only interested in helping them build their wardrobe, but really about their lifestyle and everything that surrounds them. And what's been very clear for a long time is that people really invest a lot of time and a lot of energy in building their wardrobe. So it follows that they would really also deeply care about the environments that they spend their time in, whether that's at home or at work, which, of course, are two places that the boundaries have become quite blurred recently. We work a lot more from home than we have done ever in the last few years.
2: Do you find that people's attitudes towards how much investment they put into decorating the home or the type of brands they pick up has changed over the last few years and since you've decided to get into this sector?
4: People are looking at interiors and decor, again, because they are spending a lot more time from home now in a less static way and they want to experiment and they want to understand how they can evolve their environments whether that's with the seasonal change or just to really freshen things up and that's an idea we really want to explore with people so we're seeing people shopping certainly more frequently smaller items so they can re-accessorize their homes be it soft furnishings or ceramics tabletops and so on Less often, of course, for larger pieces. But again, early days for us, interestingly, there really isn't a major luxury player in the online global space that owns this. So we're excited because we kind of get to experiment a little bit. It's somewhere we can help to write the rule book and try new things out and understand and test and see what our customers are most excited by, where they engage.
2: And how did you approach the edit that you're offering for the live section and the different home and interiors brand? Because you've got a really nice mix of fashion names that have gone into the interiors world, but also really specialized design brands. So what are some of your favorites and also some of the ones that have been performing well since the launch?
4: We carried the principle that we've always held dearly on the fashion side into interiors and that really is about curation I mean curation 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 this is what the buying team talk about certainly within fashion it's an overused word and often a misused word but it really is our heartbeat and I think that in fact we know that our customers really value first of all our perspective and also expect us to do some of the work in terms of really showing them the most relevant most desirable products available you know we're not a marketplace and they don't want all of that unnecessary noise of seeing every single dress bag bars whatever it might be that's available they want to understand what's relevant to them what's new what's exciting and as you say we've gone for an interesting mix i mean of course we brought our fashion partners who have a presence in home into design so we have a lot of soft furnishings which is a natural extension of the fashion houses with brunello cucinelli with laura piana with Pucci and many others, and then there are other designers that have a more let's say, all-encompassing point of view, so you know, Gucci and Versace and others work across many more categories, and they sit alongside the big design world stars Capolini, Cassina Fornissetti, Ginori are all present, of course, as I think people would expect, but what we're really excited about are some of the more niche interesting artisanal designers that we've been able to bring on board. These are, in some cases, designers that customers may be less familiar with, so there's a sense of discovery, which is what, of course, gets people excited.
2: And is it possible to translate those stories of craft and that quality online, or are your events a big part of what makes My Teresa successful? Because I know you've been traveling the world and connecting with customers in person as well and showing them both your fashion and some of your interiors.
4: I think online it's our duty to tell these stories. I mean, of course, customers gravitate towards big names that they know and aspire to. But it's equally important that we tell the stories of these craftsmen and that people don't just see a decorative object on screen. They really understand what is behind it and why it's relevant. And there's a great quote from the founder of Lobjet and he said that it's not the price of the Item that's important it's the value that's put into it and and that's exactly the story we need to tell our events are a crucial part of it they are an integral part of our dna we've launched on the fashion side and now in, in a couple of instances with home and interiors and design more than 40 events in the last year we've been extremely busy And it's an opportunity to sit face to face with our customers because we bring customers to dinners to celebrate, particularly co-created capsules, which we've designed together with the brands, really allow them to step into the designer's world and get a kind of money can't buy access. that's an area we want to develop going forward. We want to expand on that and think about how we can enhance it and, and also create more engagement even for a wider audience on a physical level.
2: When it comes to fashion brands going into interiors and design, obviously a lot of them are doing it because there's a big business opportunity there. But are they doing it well and are they doing it in a way that can compete with the specialists? Creating apparel or a pair of shoes is different than creating furniture or even a candle. How are they approaching this new category given their expertise is in clothing
4: yeah it's a fair comment and we're very careful that we only work with designers that really have something to contribute so I think it's important actually that just because you're a fashion designer doesn't mean you should simply franchise your brand into other categories you have there has to be some integrity there I think if you speak to any great fashion designer about their inspiration. They may, of course, talk to you about the clothes or the accessories or whatever it is that they're designing. But in the most part, they'll talk to you about their philosophy, about their ethos, about their aesthetic approach to building their houses. There's no reason why the creativity simply needs to be limited to wardrobes. And of course, a lot of designers are very involved in the process of not only the collection itself, but how it's presented how it's presented in their stores, what the environment is, how it's displayed. That also goes for their showroom environments, for the industry, when our buying team visit and see the collection that we are going to edit and present on site, whether that's through their runway shows. I mean, more and more cruise runway shows now are done in different locations around the world, and that requires them to create a stage setting. So in some ways very credible fashion designers already thinking about interiors and environments and spaces even if they're not retailing them so i don't think there's actually a better time now than for designers who have something to say to expand their creativity and and really create sort of tangible manifestations of their vision that people can actually be in and touch
2: And when it comes to the customer side of things, do they buy in parallel ways when it comes to their fashion and their interiors? Are there common trends that you spot or do they stay true to one style, to specific brands? I think more than ever,
4: people like to experiment. I mean, there are parallels, of course, and differences between fashion and design. Furniture, the building blocks of a beautiful and functional space, much like staple items in a wardrobe. Maybe you have a favorite pair of denims or knits that you can wear every day or or a beautiful coat but of course you can accessorize them differently depending on what you're doing that day you can rotate artwork you can add throws you can change the objects and the decor just in the same way as you can re-accessorize an outfit depending on if you want to make it more casual or more formal so there are parallels part of our job is to show people how you can take all of these moving parts and put them together in a way which creates an appeal which is much greater than the sum of the parts and i think especially in design maybe even more so than fashion what makes a great room in some cases is the many elements whether it's soft furnishings decor the furniture itself and people need to understand how to put that together and that's to a large degree where our our edits certainly but also our styling and our photography really come into play and help customers inform their purchases
2: Since the launch, have there been any specific products, specific brands that have been particularly popular with customers? What have they been shopping for?
4: We launched over the summer, so we certainly saw very high demand for tabletop. I think we just come out of a pandemic. People have wanted to come together again. They've wanted to embrace each other, throw parties, open their homes. I mean, our homes have been like closed castles for two or three years and so tabletop has been very popular and and it's diverse i mean we've sold very summery sicilian inspired tabletop from dolce and gabbana we've sold minimalist styles from the scandinavian brands but again i think it's very experimental i think just because you you have a taste for the minimal one week doesn't mean you can't you know embellish and be more decorative and flamboyant the next early days for us again experimentation there's lots of potential, certainly in ceramics and decorative objects i mean one of my favourites is l'objet. Such incredible attention to detail and really, really fine craftsmanship, but on some of their pieces meets the sort of very extraordinary, really, creativity of the Haas brothers, who are based in Los Angeles, who bring a very playful, almost cartoon-esque vibe to the product so that's something you should look for on site.
2: And for you specializing in the fashion sector and then navigating this new category for my Teresa, what has it been like and how has it changed your job and I guess your home as well? Maybe you're starting to collect a lot more lobjet pieces?
4: It's dangerous. On a personal <laughs> level it's dangerous. There's a temptation to to spend every day of course. It's exciting because we, of course, went out to seek expertise and to become informed. We wouldn't do anything before. We were very confident in in our approach. We don't do things by half measures, but we are fashion specialists and this is a new arena for us. There's no question about that. So that is exciting. I think the nature of being an online retailer is you don't always know. You are every day reinventing what you're doing creating new opportunities, experimenting, seeing what works and what doesn't, and adjusting accordingly. So we looked at interiors and decor in much that way. We may be fashion specialists. We may have a lot to learn. And we went out and obviously filled those knowledge gaps, but it's been a very exciting process. And I think the team have been really spirited and and have gained a lot of creativity by having that new challenge. And And in many ways, that feeds back to fashion, You know, allows you to look at things differently and not become too... Dogmatic to set in our ways. That was Richard
0: Johnson, Chief Commercial Officer at Mike Teresa. He was speaking to Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print too, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise. And you can reach me on nm at Thanks for listening.